and sisters, members and friends of the Great Little Zion Baptist Church. In honor of Black History Month, I simply want to encourage you two things. One, please take the time to study African-American history. Oftentimes people ask the question, where is a good starting point? Let me suggest this very small, minor, but yet significant book by Malcolm X entitled Malcolm X on Afro-American History. One reason why I highly suggest it is because of what he says in this particular text that encourages me to continue to study African-American history. He says, and I quote, the number one thing that makes us differ from other people is our lack of knowledge concerning the past, proof of which almost anyone else can come into this country and get around barriers and obstacles that we cannot get around and the only difference between them and us they know something about the past and in knowing something about the past they know something about themselves they have an identity pick up you a copy of this you can buy it at amazon for a dollar nowadays read this this is extremely important in terms of getting you some of the basic information about African-American history. Another text is by a gentleman by the name of Amos Wilson. Amos Wilson is a psychiatrist who specializes in African psychology. This book, Self-Hatred and Self-Defeat, is one of the best books I've ever read. Get you a copy. It helps you recognize the reasons why we have such mental challenges in terms of self-hate and in terms of self-defeat. Love you guys. Be strong. Remember, you got to know your history in order to know your identity. In Jesus' name.
And welcome to our Black History Month moment of the week. This week, we are exploring our youth and young adults of our church with the hashtag OurFutureIsBlack. For our first youth, we have Faith Bradley. And one thing she shared with us is that she was recently accepted into the Congress of Future Medical Leaders program sponsored by Harvard University and was really excited because she was recommended by her school. Our next young adult is Josiah Bethea. And one thing that he said is, I would like people to know about me is that I am always here to help in any way. I can, and if I don't know how to help, I will find the person who will be willing to help you. Our next young adult is Tasha Murphy. She stated, I am committed to my community to continue to strive for black excellence in our music ministry and the advancement of the kingdom. After all, this is what it's all about, saving souls and growing stronger in Christ. Our next young adult is Glenn Marcus Bazemore. And he stated, 
If I can become a mechanical engineer, then anyone can. My love for art has pushed me beyond measure, and I challenge you to dig deep and find your passion. Next up is Insura Simulton, and she states, I hope that I can be an example for younger black girls that I interact with so they can see and say yes. You're going to have to work harder for what you want, but anything is possible when you try. Our next young adult is Zachary Pickett, and his life's philosophy is, God didn't make you to bring hate into the world, and life is too short for it. So, learn to live and love more. And lastly, our young adult is Kayla Parson. One thing I want people to know about me is that I am a black woman. And as a black woman, I will give you my all as needed. My strength, my effort, and my love. The blessing for us is that we have to God to rest in, God to place our strength in, and God to share our most vulnerable moments in. We thank you so much for sharing in our Black History Month moments for the month of February. And don't forget, Black History Month is every month. Up next is our Black History Month moment, featuring Lyndon F. Wrighton Sr. In this interview, he will be talking about his father, John H. Wrighton III, a Black South Carolina lawyer who shook it up for all of those African-American lawyers here today. Um, I'm Lyndon Wrighton. I'm the 10th child of 12. I'm the seventh son. Uh, so you can imagine that my family is, is a large, loving family. Um, I have over a hundred nieces and nephews. So a very large family. Um, my parents, born on Edisto Island, South Carolina, a little island 23 miles off the coast of Charleston, South Carolina. It's, it's an island where people are, are sent or to be punished or to be banished from the mainland of Charleston. It is similar to the Sapelo Island of Georgia. Um, if you know anything about the Sapelo Island of Georgia, it's like 30 miles off the coast of Georgia. And the people there speak Gullah, Patois, and Creole. So my parents are versed in three languages, Gullah, Patois, and Creole, similar to the Sapelo Island people. Um, so let me start with my mother. My mother is the baby of 12 children herself. And um, she was the only person in the family uh, who was afforded an opportunity to go to a private school. Uh, she went to Mather Academy in Beaufort, South Carolina. My father, the baby of 15 children, and he was able to go to a private school called Avery Institute in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, while there in Charleston, he, he took an extreme interest in the law as well as civil rights issues. Uh, in those days, it was extremely segregated in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, the Blacks weren't able to walk on the same side of the street as the whites. Uh, there was an immediate refusal for African-Americans to gain access to lunch counters, to taxi cabs, to transportation, movie theaters, 
uh, you name it, everything was segregated. That did not rest well with my father. Um, one of the immediate things that did not sit well with my father was he was given a summer job back on Edisto Island on the beach. Um, they could not swim in the water. All they could do was pick up trash, um, do all the transportation and logistics issues of the day, but not be allowed to swim in the water. That really motivated him to be become an attorney. Um, secondly, um, he had a deep love for his brothers and sisters. I told you about his family, very large family. Um, he had a deep love and abiding love for his brothers and sisters. One of his sisters' husband was killed by the Ku Klux Klan. Oh, wow. And he was thrown in a river and fed to alligators and fish and all that. And that was very unsettling to my brother as well as his sister. So given all of those circumstances, those were the motivating things that caused him to go to law school or to want him to apply to law school. Mm -hmm. uh, he went to undergraduate at South Carolina State University from 1947 to 1952. Uh, once he graduated, he decided to apply to law school. And of course, I just told you, I shared with you about segregation of the day in South Carolina. Mm -hmm. um, he was immediately rejected when he applied to the only law school in South Carolina, which was the University of South Carolina in Columbia, South Carolina. Mm -hmm. uh, he, it, since his immediate rejection, he did not accept that for an answer. Uh, he took the memo. Uh, he applied to the, the local chapter of the NAACP, which was represented, he was represented by uh, four lawyers, Robert Carter, um, Thurgood Marshall, W.F. Robinson, and uh, another lawyer, which I can't remember, but he was represented by four lawyers. Thurgood Marshall decided that he wanted to take my father's case. He wanted to champion it himself and come from New York to represent him in court. Um, so that developed a friendship with my father and Thurgood Marshall, the lasting friendship over 35 years. Um, oh, wow. So um, as a young kid, when I was growing up in the 60s, then my father, when Thurgood Marshall would come to South Carolina, he would always stay and take residence at our home. Um, he wouldn't stay with other folks in Charleston, always with attorney writing in his family. So we we knew him as Thurgood, you know, even mm -hmm. though we were supposed to be calling him. Oh, <laughs> of course. <laughs> right, right. You know, Justice Marshall. And, yes, uh, Justice we, Marshall. We, right. We didn't know him as that. Uh, we, we were children and, and children being children. Uh, he was just a friend of our family. So he represented my father uh, against the University of South Carolina. Um, the University of South Carolina was given three choices. Mm -hmm. First one, close the law school at the University of South Carolina, admit my father, number two, to the University of South Carolina, or build a law school at an historically black college and university in Orangeburg, South Carolina. And uh, the University of South Carolina and the state assembly took the third option to build a law school at Orangeburg, South Carolina, 
Uh, they paid him $1 million in cash uh, to attend the law school. And, and they built the law school there with the, with the uh, books, the law facility, the library, even though um, other lawyers and other friends of my father told him not to attend the law school, um, he felt that it was his best option. Uh, mm -hmm. Other other lawyers in the state and other NAACP lawyers wanted him to continue the fight to press the University of South Carolina to allow him to enter, to admit him. Um, he, he was impatient um, and, that, and that caused uh, some friction between other African-American lawyers, of course, um, because he didn't listen. He mm -hmm. enrolled in, the, in South Carolina State and then graduated, um, completed the law school and then took the bar exam. Now, what happened with the bar exam was very unique. Mm -hmm. uh, he took the bar exam three times. Oh, okay. Uh, because they, this is the first time that the state of South Carolina instituted a bar exam um, prior to African-Americans being accorded the opportunity to go to law school all the white lawyers who graduated from the University of South Carolina, they were just given a law license and allowed to practice. Mm -hmm. But when African-Americans wanted to go to law school and become lawyers, they instituted the bar exam in the state of South Carolina to punish my father for challenging segregation, challenging to earn civil rights for Af other African-Americans they failed him on the bar exam three times. Um, but that didn't stop him. That didn't deter him. Yeah. He, he compared his answers with all the other 50 students who took the bar exam with him and they had the same answers or similar answers. And his was the only one that did not pass, oh. but, but all the others did. And, and so when he, he, he took it for the fourth time and he said, okay, if I don't pass it this time, well, then I get to enroll in the University of South Carolina. Well, the University of South Carolina didn't like that. And they, okay, you pass. Pass, yeah. You, you, you don't even have to take it the fourth time. You pass, you're, you're in, you're, you're a lawyer, here's your law certificate. Um, so he graduated from South Carolina State uh, Law School and then that just that wasn't enough you know he he decided that he would help all the other lawyers pass the bar exam so the school operated from 1947 to 1966 okay for 19 years and and for the 19 years he went back to help every law student pass the bar exam now that is a tremendous commitment yes it is uh, now that's that's a tremendous commitment. That that's something that a lot of people don't know. The first and only black law school in the state of South Carolina is in Orangeburg, South Carolina. the The state of South Carolina was happy uh, to close the law school in 1966. They they cited that there wasn't enough students or enough interest in the law school program for African-Americans, so they're gonna close the law school. But then they put the admissions bar really high mm -hmm. to get into the University of South Carolina. Mm -hmm. So it was very strategic for them to close the law school at South Carolina State because 51 lawyers 
had passed the bar exam. Wow, that's 51, Right, 51 black lawyers passed the bar exam. Mm -hmm. Not only that, all the 51 black lawyers took on civil rights issues, police brutality, um, illegal evictions from homes and properties, um, trying to gain access to public beaches, uh, movie theaters, um, illegal racial profiling, like people driving cars and they're getting pulled out and, and police brutality, um, whimsical things like jaywalking, mm -hmm. uh, of course, and then the terrorist activities, which I call terrorist activities of the Ku Klux Klan, you know, uh, cutting babies out of women's stomachs. Mm -hmm. So my father took a very powerful case, two of them I'm gonna talk about. Okay. One, one was Holly Hill, South Carolina, where a, a young man was uh, on the side of a highway. It's like an Emmett Till case. He was on the side of a highway and a white young lady said that the black young man winked at her and they just obliterated him. Um, they, they burned him up from, you know, they hung him on a tree, they burned him up. My father took the case and of course, won a conviction. So that, you don't win convictions in the 60s and the 70s against the Ku Klux Klan. That yeah. you, you just don't, it's unheard of. Um, the second most compelling case was my father had family friends in Edisto Island, South Carolina that were white. The Stutz family, uh, John and Paul Stutz, they were accused of robbing a taxi cab driver in Charleston, South Carolina, mm -hmm. a white family. Um, no one would defend this white family because they were basically uh, sympathetic to the black condition. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, so white lawyers did not want to defend them and other black lawyers did not want to defend them because it would upset Charleston. Uh -huh. uh, okay. It would cause uh, the Southern barons to clash. Uh, but my father, being stubborn, uh -huh. being brave, right, took the case. Uh, my my grandmother was friends with the Stutz family. Uh, so my grandmother prevailed upon my father to take the case and defend them. Now, you this is the first time in the history of South Carolina where a black attorney represented white men in court. Oh, okay. uh, right. Pivotal case. And I was a young kid then, mm -hmm. uh, but my older brothers and sisters had to go to court and carry guns, basically, to make sure that no one killed our father uh, because it was a white court, um, white jurors, and a white prosecutor against one black lawyer and two other white men. Oh. And the court was packed with with people and even the blacks went to this pivotal case because they didn't want my father to get killed mm -hmm. he was he was considered the people's champion you know by that time his popularity had soared in charleston mm -hmm. he, he, he was considered the like i said the people's champion um, a person who would take unpopular cases and defend and win and uh, that's that's the good thing about what my father did. He challenged segregation. He challenged police brutality. He challenged all the unpopular things in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, we want to extend our thanks.
you, Mr. Lyndon F. Wrighton Sr. And we hope that you have learned something new in our Black history today. Don't prophesy, I said he's leaning. In whose 
told to move to the Cape Coast where we were forced to say goodbye to our land, our freedom, our identities, to a religious institution where sinning was illegal but segregation was always excused, to the back of the bus, to the coloreds only sections, seeking refuge in juke joints and sugar shacks because our kind was welcome only where the darkness could conceal our light. To the sides of our vehicles as we're demanded to keep our hands away from the wheel and up where they can be seen. But now, it's our choice to move away from the stigmas and stipulations that have abridged our names like their length is a path leading nowhere and their enunciation and entanglement too tight for the tongue to work loose. Away from the standards requiring our hair to be unlocked like a house that is not a home and stretched until our edges rip and tear at the seams away from the injustices that have held us bound in chains from generation to generation and incarcerated by the ignorance to our own worth. Away from the generational curses that have passed through our bloodlines, never discussed, never dissected, but always dictated and detested. Now, we move on our own accord to the beat of our own drums, from the stomping of our feet to the claps in tune with our hums, we're moving to our peace, to our protection, and to our purpose. We're not moving to get out the way. We're moving on up, moving on out, moving closer and closer to a brighter day. Zion, if you will, get your Bibles and join me in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 9. The Acts of the Apostles, chapter 9, and we're going to begin reading at verse 20. 
and conclude at verse 31. Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 20, and conclude at verse 31. Before we proceed, let me express my thankfulness, my gratitude to those of you who volunteered your time on this past Saturday as you were participating in helping in the food distribution. We certainly want to say thank you for extending the grace and the love and the care to those who came through and collected boxes. It was our joy and privilege to be able to bless someone else's life, and I want to encourage you to continue to participate as we do this endeavor once a month as well. So once again, thank you so kindly on behalf of the entire church. Acts chapter 9 and beginning at verse 20. Now let me read this story, this concluding story in this final part of this four-part series. I want to read it from the Eugene Peterson's translation, The Message Bible. We're going to preach from the New American Standard Bible as we typically do, but I want to read it from the Eugene Peterson's Message Bible because I just want you to feel and to hear the thrust of how Saul's life is evolving and as you continue to move in the book of Acts, his name will be moved from that Hebrew word Saul, or Hebrew name Saul, and he'll begin to be called Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. Here we go, Acts chapter 9, verse 20. Saul spent a few days getting acquainted with the Damascus disciples, but then went right to work, wasting no time, preaching in the meeting places that this Jesus was the Son of God. They were caught off guard by this and not all sure they could trust him. They kept saying, isn't this the man who wreaked havoc in Jerusalem among the believers? And didn't he come here to do the same thing, arrest us and drag us off to jail in Jerusalem for sentencing by the high priest? But their suspicion didn't slow Saul down for even a minute. His momentum was up now and he plowed straight into opposition, disarming the Damascus Jews and trying to show them that this Jesus was the Messiah. After this had gone on quite a long time, some Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul got wind of it. They were watching the city gates around the clock so they could kill him. Then one night, the disciples engineered his escape by luring him over the wall in a basket. Back in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. They didn't trust him one bit. Then Barnabas took him under his wing. He introduced him to the apostles and stood up for him, told them how Saul had seen and spoken to the master on the Damascus road, and how in Damascus itself he had laid his life on the line with his bold preaching in Jesus' name. After that, he was accepted as one of them, going in and out of Jerusalem with no questions asked, uninhibited as he preached in the Master's name. But then he ran afoul of a group called Hellenistics. He had been engaged in a running argument with them who plotted his murder. 
when his friends learned of the plot, they got, out of, they got him out of town, took him to Caesarea, and then shipped him off to Tarsus. Things calmed down after that, and the church had smooth sailing for a while. All over the country, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, the church grew. They were permeated with a deep sense of reverence for God. The Holy Spirit was with them, strengthening them, and they prospered wonderfully. Again, our sermon series is entitled Reset for a Greater Purpose. The title of this sermon is Reset According to Saul, Part 4, Subtitle, So Much Promise, So Much Promise, Reset According to Saul, Part 4. That is his name, Saul of Tarsus. He epitomizes the journey that we often have to take to the place called conversion. His place was on the Damascus Road, but you and I have been on that same road just under different names. We know that road as the Depression Road the self-hate road, the breast cancer, lung cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer road, death road, diabetes road, divorce road, abuse road, unemployment road, hypertension road. Many of these roads have led us to some form of conversion or change in life. For Saul, it was being changed from a persecutor to a preacher. For others, it was being converted from envy to becoming an entrepreneur, from being distraught to being delivered, and from being a mess to now being a walking miracle. From such, we have amassed a tremendous testimony, walking down those various entitled Damascus roads. We've amassed a testimony that is underscored without question by grace, by mercy, by hope, and by vision. The roads that I previously mentioned may not have been one of yours, but you have your own road, your own kind of Damascus road that led you to some form of conversion or change in your life. And now you are celebrating, you are crazy happy, you are overwhelmed with joy that your life is attached to the testimony of grace that your life is strengthened by the provision of mercy, that your life every day seems to baptize itself in the glory of hope, and that your life is now navigated by the promise of a vision. 
But just like Saul, whenever you are on your Damascus road, whatever that road might be, there is going to be opposition. And that opposition arises so that it might confront or cause you and I to miscarry, to abort, to merely abort or miscarry the dream that is within us, the hope that is within us, somehow cause a way for us to detour away from the destiny that lies before us. Opposition specializes in the realm of tripping up, creating obstacles, setting in roadblocks, providing landmines, so that we will end up not being what we were intended to be. You might ask why. Well, opposition does that because opposition knows whether it's a person or whether it's a spirit, it knows that you and I are pregnant with life. That's what I said. We are pregnant with life. At birth, we have been impregnated with a seed that not only produces life, but there is an expectation of the creator of his creature that they will live to flourish to become all that they were intended to be. What are we pregnant with? Well, let's begin by saying that we are pregnant with possibilities. By possibility, we simply mean that it's amazing how when you think about what possibly could be, we can then see how murderers are turned into miracles and how persecutors are turned into preachers. You got to keep in mind, when you talk about potential, we are locked into what Saul, who later will become Paul, will write to the church at Galassi, chapter 1, verse 15 through 19, and make clear that all potential has its roots in God. He makes clear that God is the source of everything. Realize and I want you to catch this real closely, that when we use the word potential, that the word potential has at its root the word potent. The word potent is critical because it means full of power. God is always potent, which is why we describe him as omnipotent omnipotent. We call him that because God in the word omni means always, potent means always full of power. God is always full of power. That means that creation is abounding with potential because the creator is the potential principle. God planned the world in God's mind before God spoke it into existence. That's to suggest to you that no matter what it is, you are full of potential. I, I don't care where you are right now. 
I don't care what situation you are in. I don't care what you are going through. I don't care what circumstance is saying. You've got to get this in your spirit. You are pregnant with potential. And by potential, once again, we mean reserved power. We mean untapped strength. We mean unused success. We mean hidden talents. It's what you have not done, but what you are capable of doing. You have that. You have that right now, and I want you to get that into your spirit. You are pregnant with potential. That's why opposition is trying its best to keep you from realizing your potential. Opposition also knows that we are not only pregnant with potential, but we are pregnant with possibilities. Possibilities simply means, as I said earlier, that who could imagine that God could take a murderer like Saul and create a miracle out of him? Who could imagine that God could take a persecutor with such a reputation and background and yet convert him to become the preacher. The concept is simple when we talk about possibilities. It's simple because it's arguably the difference between those who win and conquer and those who don't. They grasp their opportunities, listen to this, they grasp their opportunities before them and they dare to dream. They challenge themselves. If I had time, I'd talk about dreaming big. They, they dream to a point where the circumstance and people around them says, you can't, that's not possible. But they dare to dream big because they are pregnant with possibilities. And so are you. Pregnant with possibilities. In their daring to dream, they commit themselves to do what non-dreamers do or don't do. They are willing to try. Even in the face of opposition, they will try. Secondly, they're willing to risk. They'll risk it all so that they can satisfy themselves that at least they tried. And third, they believe that if it's going to be it's going to be left up to me. They know that they can't accomplish it. They can't fulfill nor actualize the possibilities if they don't do it themselves. Do not buy into this idea in the Christian context that the only way that you can get there and realize the potential and the possibilities is to merely just wait on God. There's an ideology in the Christian realm, has been, historically still is, that I think has mesmerized those of African-American descent to just simply wait on God and not do anything for yourself. Not, therefore, realizing the full potential and the full possibilities. And I'm here to tell you, don't do that. Instead, embrace, because you're pregnant with both. 
And opposition knows that you're pregnant with potential, that you're pregnant with possibilities, and that you're pregnant with purpose. Opposition knows that. Here's a, here's a great saying that I came upon. The greatest tragedy in life is not death, but life without a purpose. Life without a reason. It's dangerous to be alive and not know why you were given life. The deepest craving of the human spirit is to find out in a very simplified sense how am I significant and what is the relevance of my contribution to humanity. That's the ultimate pursuit of the human being. I understand, again, in the Christian Orthodox perspective that the idea is that man has a yearning for God but I disagree. I think the ultimate yearning in man is to first find out what makes me significant. Then there is the invitation to consider the creator of who you are. I do not argue with the fact that the creator gave us this yearning. Don't argue that point. But I do want to make sure you understand in you is purpose. It's in you. But it's up to you to make sure that you pursue that purpose. Purpose is the key to life. Purpose is the master of motivation and the mother of commitment. Purpose gives birth to hope and instills the passion to act. Purpose. That's what purpose does. And I often tell people when we talk about ministry or purpose in life, what is it? that gets you going? Where is your heart content or yearning to be fulfilled? Purpose. And the enemy knows that you have purpose. Isn't it interesting to note that Solomon in Ecclesiastes 1 and 2 says that life is meaningless, life is empty. King James, vanity is vanity, all is vanity. That's what he concludes after his own years of observation. And yet, when you read Proverbs 29 and 18, he says, where there is no revelation, where there is no vision, here it is, where there is no purpose, the people throw off restraint. In another space, he says, without that, they perish. They lose sight of who they were meant to be. When he says they throw off restraint, that means that they have no longer any self-control, no longer any moral conviction, no longer any ethical boundaries because they lack purpose. That's always been the objective of white supremacy in America, to make those of African-American descent feel like they have no purpose in life. That is the reason why the black body is dehumanized to sort of speak into the psyche that you mean nothing, you have no purpose. And I want to declare to you today, that's not true. You got purpose, and you need to find it. Discover what it is. Because you are pregnant with purpose, that leads to the next point, and that is you are pregnant with passion. There is something about life that causes your heart to well over in joy when you are engaged. As simplified as this may be, 
We may not think of the person who just loves to repair cars, but that's that person's passion. They can get it done and they'll do it without hesitation. The person who loves to uh, somehow serve the poor, passion. The person who loves to do hair, passion. The person who loves to help design clothes and help dress people for their particular profession, passion. Not all passions have a spiritual connotation in the sense that you've got to preach or you've got to witness or you've got to sing gospel. Passion. Passion means that there's something in me where my heart yearns to do and in doing it, I bring glory to the creator who gave me the gift to get it done. Talk about passion. But then there's another element. Opposition knows that I'm also pregnant <clears throat> with prayer power. Prayer power enables me to overcome, and I recognize that I need divine power. I need help. I need something more than my own strength, but yet I must launch out with the strength that I'm given. That's why I'm here to say it doesn't matter, perhaps, whether you're going through a divorce or you have been divorced or whether you're separated or you are separating, or whether you're unemployed or you know you may be unemployed. It doesn't matter if you don't have a college degree. Listen to me. You are pregnant with possibilities, with potential, with purpose, with passion, and with prayer power you come then to recognize that there's a name, there's a source to which I have to call on. And when we get to the book of Acts here in chapter 9, that's what we are introduced to. Therein lies the reasons why Saul is experiencing haters, evil, opposition. Recognizing there's potential, there's passion, there's possibility. There's all of these things that God has put in the life of that individual. It happened to Saul on his Damascus road, and it will happen to you and I on our own Damascus road as well. What I want to do in the next few minutes is just lift up some experiences that I noticed that happens in my observation of Saul's reset journey that highlights why he experiences so much promise, why he has been baptized in such promise. Notice, first of all, as we read verse 18 through 22, that God provides the interjection of hope, the interjection of hope. His eyes are blind. He cannot see naturally. But God gives him hope by providing Ananias with the ability to lay hands on the eyes of Saul. He's the instrument. Having a malady, having a problem, having an obstacle can leave you in a space of blindness. Blindness to the point where you not only can't see, but you lose expectation to be able to see. 
And notice what God does. It's amazing how he interjects into Saul's life hope by using Ananias. Here's something I want you to catch grammatically in verse 18. People say that Saul's eyes were covered in scales, but that's not what the text says. It says that his eyes, something fell from his eyes like scales. Meaning that there was something that hindered his blindness and only the laying on of hands by Ananias could set his vision free. And look how God interjected by anointing Ananias to lay hands on him by bringing him relief in his blindness. But then look at verse 19, clause B. He creates for Saul, once again, by interjecting hope, relationships with other believers. Look what the text says in verse 19. For several days he was with the disciples. Who were the disciples? The disciples of the church in Damascus who were at Damascus and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the son of God. The same disciples who were fearful, wondering, is this not the same Saul that we knew who were coming here, coming here to arrest us and wreak havoc on us, take us back to Jerusalem and incarcerate us. Now he's in fellowship, relationship with the disciples. God can do that because with so much promise in you, he interjects hope by utilizing people around you. First, Ananias, now the disciples. Watch quickly. He takes and replaces the reputation of Saul. Look at verse 21. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed because they were saying, is this not the one who from Jerusalem came to destroy, who called on his name, who came here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the priest? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Why is that amazing? God, no matter what your past is, can surround you with people who will look beyond your past and see the potential, the possibility, the passion, the purpose, all because of the prayer power that's resting in your life. That's what he did here. He used Ananias. He used the disciples as well that were in the church at Damascus. And they helped transform the reputation of Saul so much so that God began to provide through Saul evidence that he has been converted on the Damascus road. I want to declare to you today that that's what God is going to do and very well may be doing right now, interjecting hope into your life because you have so much promise 
And all he wants to do is reset you so that you can walk in that victory. But not only does God interject hope into the life of Saul, but God also permits the interruption of hate to be in the life of Saul. Look at what the verse says, beginning in verse 23. Saul's ministry is now beginning to flourish in its early stages. But there were haters who came out of the woodworks. There were those who were opposed to Saul. Arguably, it could be because of his former reputation, which meant that they were probably in line one with another in the work of Saul. But now, his whole agenda has changed. He's no longer for the status quo. He's now preaching against the status quo. Look at the text says in verse 23, and when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with Saul. Some translations say they plotted to kill him. They wanted to take him out because he no longer ride or dies with the folk to whom he previously was. He now is under new management. He's got a new perspective on life. He now is being exposed to those possibilities, to that potential. He's been exposed to the purpose. He's been exposed to the passion, to the power of prayer. Remember when he was blind for three days in Damascus, all he could do was pray. He's now being exposed to everything that God had instilled in him. And yet, his opposition is given. God permit the interruption of hate to rise in Saul's life. How do you know that, Pastor? Well, look, look what the Bible says. These haters only remembered his past. He's a persecutor. And you've got to get over the fact that some people will only remember your past. If they could do it and you permit them to do it, They'll help you relive it every time they see you or whenever you go against their grain. That's all they cared about, what he used to be. But because you have such pregnancy in you, I'm declaring to you today, you've got to look beyond them. Look beyond that kind of criticism. You have got to bury your past in the sense that it can't prohibit you from moving in your present. They were only concerned about remembering his past. Secondly, they couldn't believe his present. He's been converted. They can't believe that he's a new creature in Jesus Christ. There are some folk who are not going to be able to believe that you are now a believer in the kingdom. Your whole life has changed. You no longer do what you used to. You don't want to do it. You're trying to break away from some of those habits. You're trying to break those chains that have had you in bounds for so long. They can't believe your present transformation. They want to drag you back to the past. They only wanted to remember his past. They could not believe his present. Watch this. And they wanted to determine his future. 
They wanted to do that by making sure that he's dead. And some of those who are of the same like-minded in your own life, they may not want you physically dead, but their behavior and their criticism and their actions can very well lead you to a mental death, a spiritual death. And if you're not careful, it can ultimately lead you to a fatal death. I'm trying to raise your awareness to understand that God will interject hope in your life, but at the same time, God may permit the interruption of hate to come in your life. And the hope is that you will dig deeper in the hope that brought you safe thus far. And look what the text says when it comes to soul. It says in verse 23, but then in verse 24, they had a plot. They had a plan to destroy Saul, to kill him. But look closely at verse 24. But their plot became known to Saul. Ah, look in between the lines of the text. Who made it known to Saul? How did he find out that they were plotting? I'll give you this in the humanistic realm. Could have very well been rumors through the streets. I'm certain that happened as well. Could have very well been someone who made it known to Saul, perhaps had an inside track, and began to like Saul or began to recognize he's not the same and certainly didn't want to see him demise, informed him. Or could have been divine intervention to let Saul know. Because look what the text says. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates of the city day and night that they might put him to death. Because their objective through their hate was to kill him. And since we're celebrating African American history this month, you've got to understand that there are those who are involved in a systemic system who have a desire to not only make us a permanent underclass in this country, but also to kill us. Remember what Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, the thief comes not but for to steal and destroy. And if I had time, I'd tell you about how much has been destroyed and stolen from us as a people, never giving credit, Yet others have taken credit for it. How the genius that we have in our history, in our creativity, and even now, you watch in the cultural shift, there are those of another culture trying to mimic what those of African context do. Because there's a desire by hate to not only interrupt, but to kill. And I am mesmerized in my own ideological thinking. I can't figure out why God permits such interruptions in our life. Particularly as we think about the lives of Daniel Prude and George Floyd and Eric Garner and Trayvon Martin. All of these who have lost their lives. And God, where were you? Yep, I raised that question. Where were you? 
Why not interject to stop such hate? And the interjection would have not only saved that life, would have taught us that God indeed does interrupt to save. Well, he interrupt to save Saul's life. He was on his way to Damascus to kill, and now he's being transformed, he is transformed, to save. Why can't you do that? For our black brothers and sisters who have died in the streets of America. Come on, God, help us out. Help us understand why is such hate permitted against us? I admit to you, as many theologians must admit, that is a theological question that we don't have answers to. Maybe God is what the deist says, uninvolved in every day's existence. If I were a part of the status quo, the privilege of the country, I would believe no thought, without question in the, uh, what, what is called the sovereignty of God in the sense that God has everything under control and God is in control and God knows everything. I would believe that very wholeheartedly simply because when I'm privileged, I'm more quicker to acknowledge that there's a provision of God. But when I'm not on that side of the equation, I'm asking where is this protection of God? See, those are questions that preachers don't like to address, let alone talk about from the pulpit, because we've been trained to propagate a certain aspect of God. I, I think it's interesting in the Bible there were those who had questions. Jeremiah had plenty of questions for God. Elijah had a question or two for God. Moses had a question or two for God. Ain't nothing wrong with us having a question or two for God. Because I like to understand why God, the interruption of hate, which accomplishes its goal to destroy. But then as I keep reading the text, I come to the final point. Not only did God interject hope, and not only did God permit the interruption of hate, but God also provided the inspiration of healing in the story. Look at what the text says. It says in verse 25, but, and you notice in verse 24 and 25, there is the initiation of a conjunction, but, before you arrive at a conclusion, consider this. But his disciples, who disciples? Watch the grammatical aspect of the text. His disciples, whose disciples? Has Saul amassed that kind of following thus far? Perhaps. Because look at what it says. His disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, luring him in a large basket, making sure because he's pregnant with such possibility, such potential, such passion, such purpose, such power and prayer that he cannot be aborted. He cannot miscarry. So what does God do? Uses his disciples to create a way of escape. And so they lower Saul down in this basket overnight because God provided not only his disciples, 
to keep his hope alive, but God also, look what he did, connects Saul with fellow converts. He's let down, verse 25. And then verse 26 says, when he had come to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with disciples. Oh, that's another group. The group back in Jerusalem who very well knew who Saul of Tarsus was, but they didn't know the new Saul. And when you go back to the community to which you now must live and be a part of, there are folk who knew you from yesterday, but there are very few who will know you from the day because you become a new creation in Christ. And look at the text. The text says that those who were there, he was trying to associate with disciples, but everybody in town was afraid of him. They were afraid, not believing that he was a disciple. He, he's not changed. There are some people who will tell you, you, you ain't no different. Religion is just that. It's a man-made thing. There's nothing that's real transformative about it. You change because you want to change. That's what they will tell you. But remember, they don't know your story. They don't know your history. They don't know your Damascus Road experience. They don't know what you have come through and where you have been delivered from and how you have been transformed and how your life now is emerging into the newness of life. They could very well still be afraid of you. And that's fine. Because as God works to connect you with other disciples, he does just that. See, God gave Saul... And I'm almost done. He gave Saul three groups of people. He gave him Ananias. He gave him the disciples. And now he's going to give him another man by the name of Barnabas. See, God provides hope all around you when you want to fulfill your promise. And what happened, says verse 27, but Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles. I like what Eugene Peterson says. Barnabas took him under his wings and mentored him. Which I was trying to convey in our Bible study on last night. We need to understand the importance of bridging the generational gap in our congregation between the elderly and the young. We need both. And I'm trying to admonish those of you who are in the evening of your years, those who are in the morning, we need each other. And I don't know the age difference between Saul and Barnabas, but whatever it was, Barnabas stepped up and became the bigger disciple and took Saul under his wings. And watch the text. It says that he brought him to the apostles. I think it's amazing that he didn't go before the disciples, before the people of the church in the street, but he took them to the leadership, the apostles, and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and how he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of the Lord. What does Barnabas do? He restates his conversion experience. Saul's conversion experience. And sometimes in fulfilling your promise, you got to tell people about your story. You got to let them know where the Lord has brought you from and how life 
probably would have killed you, destroyed you, had it not been for the infusion of grace and mercy. And that's what Barnabas does. He restates Saul's conversion in verse 27 and in verse 28. He was with them moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. But then he rescues to secure Saul's future. Look at what verse 30 says. In verse 29, there arose a problem between the Hellenistic Jews. Saul had already had his contest with them. Contest because they were more legalistic. And in his conversion, God was breaking out of that legalistic aspect and utilizing the radical approach to now Saul preaching to Gentiles, which had not been heard of in the first century church. And in doing this, God uses Barnabas to rescue Saul's future. Look at verse 30. When the brethren heard and learned of who Saul was, they brought him down to Caesarea, sent him away to Tarsus. They said, in essence, Saul, right now, this is not where you need to be. Let, me, let us send you back to your homeland. Scholars say it's right here where you can interject Galatians chapter 1 where Saul goes off and spends some three years in Arabia where God works on Saul to get him ready to transition from Saul of Tarsus to Paul the Apostle. And sometimes people don't understand that you have to take a hiatus. You got to take a break from everybody, from everything. Just do what's necessary, your necessities of every day, because you need some time alone. We call it getting to know who I am. And yet, that's what God begins to work on my mind, work on my heart, work on my goals, work on my objectives, work on my energy, work on my purpose, helping me recognize how I am so pregnant with possibilities and potential. And that might be where you are today. That's the reason why I'm crying out. Don't let opposition or evil cause you to abort the dream within you. So in closing, what are the lessons I want us to catch in this text? Number one, God uses, God has others to help you achieve what has to be done to fulfill the promise. Remember, look at all the people in Saul's life, Ananias, we forgot to mention Judas, whose house Saul went to when he got to Damascus. That's where Ananias found him. The disciples, Barnabas, all of them helped Saul provide hope along the way. You'll have your own Barnabas and your own Ananias and your own Judas and your own other disciples that God will put in your life to instill hope. Second thing I want us to get is that you may have detractors, haters along the way who want and who will plot to destroy you. Just read the Bible. Ask Nehemiah. Nehemiah will tell you in the rebuilding of the wall, my haters rose up. And if you will notice, not until you rise up 
to become victorious, haters rise. But there's an objective. As they rise, you rise higher. In the words of Michelle Obama, we take the higher road. Ask Daniel, because he along with the Hebrew boys refused to pray to a statue, Nebuchadnezzar, but instead kept praying to their God, the haters told on them, thought that because they threw him in a lion's den and threw him in a fiery furnace, that would be the end of their story. But greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. You know the end of the story. When the king comes back to see Daniel, he's chilling with the lions. When the king looks in the window to see the Hebrew boys, they are not burned. In fact, he brings them out and the text says not even the hint of the smell of smoke is on their body. Not one hair is burned. Suggesting that God will handle the haters by providing you a miracle that will mess their minds up. And then there's a final thing. There'll always be healing in your ministry to succeed. Doesn't matter. There'll always be healing. Notice what verse 31 says to us. This is God's healing to all of Saul's opposition. So the church throughout all Judea, all Galilee, Samaria, enjoyed peace, being built up, going on in the fear of the Lord, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and continue to increase. See, if Saul was here, he'd probably tell you, when I look back after all that I have had to go through, but when I see this result, it was worth it. And I don't know where you are right now, but maybe God is trying to conform you through the words of what I'm saying. It may not look like it now, but hold on. Tighten up your grip. Trust in the word of hope. And when you get through, and you will get through to the other side, you can look back and say it was hard, but it was well worth the journey. Because God is trying to reset your mind, your life, because you've got so much promise. Father, thank you for the word today, and thank you for this glorious story in the life of Saul in Acts chapter 9. And God, I pray today that as these words went forth across this various virtuous forms, that someone, in the name of Jesus, caught what the Spirit says in their life today, going forward, will forever be changed. May they recognize the pregnancy of joy and hope and power in their life. And may they leave this broadcast never the same, but instead inspired to recognize who it is that's given them such promise. Save that soul that calls on your name today, God, and I pray in Jesus' name that they call out and say, Father, forgive me, restore me, and make me new in your kingdom. And we thank you for their new salvation. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Again, that's our hope, always our hope, that the word of God would bring about transformation, salvation in your life.
And as you leave this moment of worship, it'll never be the same. But instead, you will be inspired as well as instructed to continue to trust and believe that God has a plan for you. We are always encouraging those who continue to support the ministry, please continue to do so, for without your support, we certainly could not continue to move forward, and we thank you for what you have indeed done, and we are going to celebrate in a prophetic way of what you're going to do. Those of you who view the program, and you may not be a member of Great Little Zion, but you've never made a contribution to this ministry, we certainly would encourage you to do so as we continue with the joy of the Lord to give you the word that your life would never be the same. Listen, I want you to know that God loves you, and so do I. Be blessed as you look forward to a very prosperous, glorious week. Have expectation that the best is yet to come. In Jesus' name, 